0: Hello and welcome to episode two of the PCCN review course. My name is Kay Hoppy, and I am going to present today the clinical presentation of somebody coming in with acute coronary syndrome. Now, because this is a pretty huge topic, and I like to keep my podcast episodes somewhere between 20 to 40 minutes. I'm going to split this up into a few different sections. In this very first section, episode two, is where we're going to talk about the clinical presentation. Then episode three, we're going to look at uh, EKG. We're going to talk about the EKG findings. Associated with acute coronary syndrome, and we're going to correlate those EKG findings with the wall of the heart and the type of MI that a patient is presenting with. Then, in the next podcast episode, we're going to get into talking about diagnostic studies, and then finally, we are going to get into talking about treatments. So, we're going to break this up into small, little bite sized sections. So, that you can um, not spend, not have to spend so much time listening to a full hour or hour and a half uh, session that would incorporate everything. So, when we talk about patients that come in with acute coronary syndrome, we kind of have to take a step back and talk a bit about pathogenesis of coronary artery disease. And, you know, how it comes to pass. Well, I want you to picture a coronary artery. And when you think about the layers of the coronary artery, we have the outermost layer, which is the adventitia, the middle layer, which is the medial layer. It's the muscular layer. Then we have the inner layer of the coronary artery, which is called the intima, now, what's noteworthy here, guys, is that the intima of the coronary artery is lined with special cells that are called endothelial cells. And what starts out this whole sequence of coronary artery disease. Is when we have damage to the vascular endothelial cells. And you know what, guys, this isn't just true for the coronary arteries. It's true for any arteries in your body. I mean, it could be for the descending aorta. It could be for the femoral artery. It could be for the iliac arteries. Every artery in your body has vascular endothelial cells. Now we go to great length to protect vascular endothelial cells. For example, just a couple of examples here, you know, we give a lot of statins to people and we always think about statins being related to cholesterol and yes, indeed they are. But another benefit that the patient gets from statin therapy is endovascular protection or protection of those vascular endothelial cells. And so we use statins for that purpose, just not just for the cholesterol, but for that endothelial protection. So with the pathogenesis of coronary artery disease, we have injury to vascular endothelium, and that then sets up the inflammatory response and in the coagulation cascade. And so um we start out with platelets coming on the scene platelets cause a clump. And so eventually that clump of platelets can enlarge to the point where we actually can have vascular occlusion. Now I told you, I was going to give you a couple of examples. So let me give you the other example. And that is the renal arteries and the renal vascular bed. Now, if we have somebody with marginal renal function, you'll notice before we send that patient to a dye procedure, like a cardiac cath, we are really intent on protecting renal vascular endothelium. And we do so by giving things like mucomist. Uh, also, adequate hydration really helps to prevent the toxic effects of uh, dye induced nephropathy. And also we can give sodium bicarbonate prior to cardiac cath and afterward in order to provide for vascular endothelial protection. So if we don't, we start this cascade of event, which we said starts out with the platelets coming on the scene, followed by our inflammatory response, which includes things like macrophages This is where we see C-reactive protein levels go up. And so we use those actually, can actually draw a C-reactive protein in order to assess for inflammation. So as this cascade progresses, the patient develops a lipoprotein streak or a fatty streak. And over time, the, the lumen narrows and hardens with this plaque And all you need is a little bit of unstable plaque that cracks, and then you can develop a hemostatic response where additional platelets come on the scene with fibrinogen and cause a platelet plug, which ultimately can totally occlude the coronary. And that's what we see when patients come in with a STEMI or ST segment elevation MI, is where they have a complete occlusion of the coronary artery, and we'll be getting into that in just a moment. So what we see then is a patient that presents with literally a supply and demand imbalance. The supply does not meet the demand on the part of the heart and the patient comes in with what we call acute coronary syndrome. So let's take a look then at what that term means because acute coronary syndrome is really an umbrella, an umbrella term under which we find things like unstable angina, non-ST segment elevation MI, we'll just call it non-STEMI or NSTEMI MI and STEMI MI or ST elevation MI. So those things fall under that major category of acute coronary syndrome, unstable angina or angina, depending upon if you went to the angina or angina school of nursing, non-ST segment elevation MI and ST segment elevation MI. Now, what puts the patient at risk for the development of acute coronary syndrome? Well, we know that they can present with either modifiable or non-modifiable risk factors. Obviously, the non-modifiable risk factors are the ones that they can't do anything about. Things like their age and their gender, their heredity, their, their race. Those are all things that they can't do a thing about. But we have to focus on, in our teaching, the things that the patient can do something about. So smoking, for example. Smoking cessation is really important. Hyperlipidemia. Now, where do we want cholesterol to be? We really want cholesterol to be less than 200. We want the LDL to be less than 100 for patients with heart disease or diabetes and less than 130 for patients with at least two or more risk factors. And we're going to be talking about, you know, the rest of the risk factors as we go along. Um, HDL. We want the HDL to be, um, greater than 40. Okay. That's where, that's a desired value. And we want the triglycerides less than 150. These are all of the numbers that are really targets for us in our treatment. Another risk factor is hypertension. And you know, it's really interesting that when I went to nursing school, which was way long ago, uh hypertension was defined as a blood pressure of 140 over 90 or greater and now we're looking at prehypertension as being defined as 120 over 80 and so technically anything 120 or 80 uh 120 over 80 or greater is considered prehypertensive or hypertensive and so those numbers have lowered over time Certainly diabetes, obesity, lifestyle, stress, oral contraceptives also would be a risk factor, especially now in women that smoke and or women that are over 35 years of age. Postmenopausal state is also another risk factor for the development of coronary disease. Elevated homocysteine level. Well, what kinds of things would give you an elevated homocysteine level and what in the world is it? Well, homocysteine is a part of your amino acid structure. It's part of what makes up proteins. You and I both have homocysteine in our body. It's part of the protein structure. When you have too much of it or hyperhomocysteinemia, which is really a mouthful. It is in and of itself an independent risk factor for the development of coronary artery disease. Increased levels of homocysteine are very toxic to vascular endothelium, thereby increasing coagulability. Now, what causes it? Well, guys, it was on my PCCN exam and that was, you know, cigarette smoking. It just plain old ass, what is the leading cause of of hyperhomocysteinemia, and it's cigarette smoking. Along with that, it could be vitamin B deficiency. And really, hyperhomocysteinemia is a pretty easy treat because we treat it with B vitamins. Now, metabolic syndrome, which also was referred to as syndrome X. Um, it's kind of a constellation of different findings that if you have three or more of them, you are at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. So some of those factors are BMI greater than 30 with abdominal obesity, um, elevated triglycerides, reduced HDL, hypertension, or fasting glucose greater than 110. Now, one of the things that I wanted to mention at the beginning and it slipped my mind, so let me just go ahead and bring it up here, is if you're wanting a complete course, a complete online review, for the PCCRN at or PCCN at this moment in time I do have just recently published my PCCN online review which is on sale for a presale price of $249 for 30 continuing education hours you have 24/7 lifetime access I I'm not aware of any other continuing education companies out there that provide you with lifetime access. So this never gets shut off for you if you purchase the program. So I encourage you to head over to my website which is khoppypresents.com and sign up to be on my email list. Check out some of the courses that I have there. So just a, a little Uh, reminder for those of you that are looking for additional education. So khoppipresents.com and the link I will put below. So let's get back to our program and let's talk about angina and some of the different definitions. First of all, we have the typical angina pectoris, meaning pectoralis muscle. And so that is related to myocardial hypoxia or anoxia. Usually the patient describes the pain as being retrosternal, substernal, can be on the left side of the chest. There can be radiation up into the neck, into the jaw, down one arm or both arms. And for the elderly, for women, you oftentimes see back pain. So back pain in between the scapula, along with fatigue and indigestion are some of the indicators, clinical indicators of cardiovascular disease in women. Exertional angina, just as its name implies, is where we have chest pain or symptoms, which may not always be chest pain, can be shortness of breath related to The the four E's, right? Which are exercise, eating, extreme temperature, and emotion. Then we have Prince Metal's angina. Prince Metal's angina is also known as variant angina or coronary artery vasospasm. And you can see Prince Metal's angina in somebody that comes in, you know, it can be a very young patient. That comes in and has chest pain. They're clenching their chest, which by the way, the clenching of the chest has a name associated with it. And it's called Levine sign named after, of course, Dr. Levine. Anyway, with coronary artery spasm, that spasm in and of itself is occluding uh, flow to myocardium. So literally the signs and symptoms are the same, are they not? because if a vessel spasm for a long enough period of time, the myocardium distal to that is going to first become hypoxic and then become anoxic. And so the person can wind up with a resulting MI as a result of coronary artery vasospasm. So the big difference here, however, is really how it's treated. Once we know we're dealing with vasospasm, We treat that with a calcium channel blocker versus a beta blocker because calcium channel blockers, one of the nice things about that drug class is they specialize, um, they specialize in releasing vasospasm, whether it's a coronary vasospasm, a arterial vascular vasospasm or a cerebral vascular vasospasm uh, calcium channel blockers are great for treating that. Stable angina. Well, you know what guys, we don't usually see those people that much, right? Because stable angina means that the patient is stable and they know their pain well, they know their chest pain well. So for example, they go out and they mow half the lawn and then they sit down and rest. And then they mow the other half of the lawn because they know if they push too hard, too long they start developing chest pain. That is a person that knows themselves well and has stable angina. Or it might be a person that develops angina, knows to rest, take one nitro, and then of course can repeat in five minutes up to three. And then we always tell them to, you know, call at that, at that point. So, but stable, just like the name implies, we don't really see them very often. Unstable. These are the guys that we see, right? The patient that comes in with angina that has increasing frequency, severity, or duration, recent onset, typically within the last couple of months, or perhaps it's somebody that has had chest pain with activity. And now this chest pain is starting to occur at rest. That's definitely very clinically significant. Now, the problem with chest pain is there's so many things that can cause it, right? So we're talking now about angina, right? And we use terms like heaviness, dullness, elephant sitting on the chest, pressure, burning, Uh, patient clenches their chest, which is Levine's sign. But then we could have an aneurysm that manifests as chest pain. So now you have a patient that comes in with tearing, ripping type chest pain, tearing and ripping. And as we take their blood pressure, we find that there's a pretty big discrepancy of say 20, 30 millimeters of mercury difference between the right arm and the left. That could be a dissecting thoracic aortic aneurysm. So think about that for ripping, tearing, thoracic pain. If a patient has ripping, tearing lumbar pain, now I want you to be thinking about the possibility of a dissecting abdominal aortic aneurysm because that certainly could be the case. Now let's talk about chest pain where the patient comes in and describes it as sharp. It's worsened by coughing or it's worsened by inspiration. Maybe it's stabbing Well, now you have to be thinking along the lines of inflamed pleural or pericardial layers, right? So now you have to be thinking about pleurisy, inflamed pleural layers, and or inflamed pericardium. Now these people can come in, they're clenching their chest and They don't want to lay back, especially with pericarditis. Patients with pericarditis do not want to lay back on the bed for you to be able to assess them. Why? Because it makes the chest pain worse. It makes that sharp, stabbing chest pain worse. They're not going to lay back for you. So the position worsens the inflammation. And what's different here is that we're going to treat those patients with NSAIDs, right? We're going to haul out things like Toradol in order to treat them versus the nitroglycerin morphine type of, um, drugs that we would use for a patient coming in with your standard angina or acute MI. Now, another thing I want to bring up here, sometimes patients with pericarditis or pleuritis, they can also, when you listen, say, let's just say you're listening over the left side of the chest and you hear this grating type sound, like rubbing type sound. Well, gee, over on the left side of the chest, that could be either a pleural friction rub or a pericardial friction rub. Remember guys, the way that you know, the difference is that a plural friction rub will go away when the patient holds their breath. Whereas if the friction rub is pericardial, the friction rub will remain, right? Because as the patient holds their breath, The heart still keeps going, right? So that rub will remain with pericarditis. It will go away with pleuritis. Pulmonary embolism. Patient has sharp knife-like pain. It's shooting. It's worsened by deep inspiration. So you see you have a lot of overlap there. Pneumothorax also can be... um, described as tearing and sharp and accentuated by breathing. Boy, we're going to pick up that on chest x-ray, are we not? Then you have GI. You know, the person has this heartburn, dull, burning. You know, a lot of people don't identify that they're having a heart attack because they call it heartburn. And typically with GI related, it's worsened by eating or supine position maybe somebody has GERD, for example. And when patients come into the emergency department complaining of this dull, aching, burning, epigastric, or retrosternal type uh, chest pain, well, you know, we give them that GI cocktail, right? To see if an antacid combined with uh, is very often included in this cocktail. Does this make it go away? And so we rule out GI as part of our, you know, ruling out of the cardiac, you know, after we've done the ECG and, and looked at the cardiac cause first, of course, musculoskeletal can also be producing chest pain. I live in Wisconsin and in the winter when there's a lot of snow and you're out there shoveling. Let me tell you, uh, within a day or so, you can have some pretty significant chest pain. And especially if you have this heavy, wet snow that you're trying to shovel and lift and throw, it could be from gardening. It could be from a variety of sports. So, you know, reproducible pain. Does it hurt when I press here? What kind of movement accentuates the pain? Do you feel tender in a certain spot or sore in a certain spot? That can help you nail down chest pain related to a musculoskeletal uh, cause. Psychosomatic also, you know, can cause chest pain as well. So the story is so important. What causes the pain? 75% of patients that come in with acute coronary syndrome will have pain. 25% will not. Now you might be asking yourself, well, wait a minute. If 25% do not have chest pain, why are they here? They're here with shortness of breath related to the MI that they didn't know that they had at home because they didn't have pain. They come in typically day three, and that's why troponins become so valuable because on day three, we can look and see that the troponin is elevated, and hey, Looks like this patient has had myocardial injury within the past five to seven days. Now, who is set up for this chest pain and MI, or I should say, MI without chest pain. It's typically elderly female diabetics. And how many of those do we care for on a daily basis? It's a very common subset of people, is it not? So we talked about the characteristics, um, vital signs. It really kind of depends. There are some trends that we see. For example, with anterior wall MI, very commonly we initially see hypertension and tachycardia. Inferior wall MIs, we have a tendency to see more bradycardias and hypotension. Maybe the patient is pale and diaphoretic and sick to their stomach. They're, they're feeling very nauseated. Those are all potentials. They might have extra sounds, they might have a murmur, or they might have, as we listen to their heart tones, um, we we might hear that the, the patient has irregularly irregular type of, of tones. And when we hook them up to the monitor, we find that they're in atrial fib, which for them is a new finding. These patients oftentimes have that feeling of impending doom, that I'm going to die kind of thing. And that's always scary because if you've been in nursing any time at all, you know for a fact that when a patient says that they're going to die, it's very common that they do. And so uh, that feeling of impending doom is a very common thing as well when a patient has the actual acute MI. Now um and and by the way you know that feeling of impending doom doesn't have to just mean am i it basically is that whole sympathetic response to a major huge stressor on the part of the body and the perception on the part of the patient so guys this is it for our initial presentation of acute coronary syndrome i want to thank you for joining me for this podcast episode the next episode which will come out in a few days, uh, we are going to be talking about, um, ECG findings and the coronary arteries with different types of acute coronary syndromes. So please head over to my website at khoppypresents.com, sign up, um, subscribe to my email group so that you can know when new podcasts come out. And also be sure and check out the PCCN online review program that is accredited for 30 continuing education hours. It's 4th of July weekend, and I hope you guys have a wonderful 4th of July weekend if you are listening to it during this particular weekend. And I will be back next week with further podcast episodes. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye.